Welcome to The Way Church. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For sermon notes, service times, and more information, check us out online at thewaychurchva.com. Now let's join Pastor Matt Rothy with this week's message. Our gospel reading this morning comes from Matthew's gospel, the fourth chapter. These words will serve as the basis for our sermon message this morning. It's our tradition here to remain standing out of respect and honor and glory to the words and work of Jesus. This is Matthew chapter four. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. The gospel of our Lord. Praise be to you, O Christ. You may be seated. Is chivalry alive or dead? Kind of uh, age-old question. Debate's been going on for a while. So what I thought this morning we would do, take a quick poll. You can think about how you're going to vote for that, and I'm going to give you time to think about that while I maybe uh, summarize or define what chivalry is. Chivalry, the word itself, is a French word out of the Middle Ages that means, well, plainly a knight. It is more specifically a fully armored fighting man. That's what the word means. And then it morphed into an idea. Over history and over time, it came to represent a code of conduct for those fully armed fighting men, that they would fight and do battle with honor, with integrity. They would do what was noble and right, and they would stand up for others above all else, country, people, and they do it in a self-sacrificing way. Interestingly enough, the whole code of ethics that chivalry stand for, it, it comes out of Christianity as the romanticized and ideal version of knights going off to fight in the crusades was a thing. Over the time, literature wrote tons about it, and different cultures had maybe five, seven, 10, 12 different points of what a chivalrous knight would do so that today nobody has one unified code for it. 
But in modern times, it's still very much a thing. Chivalry is an ideal. It is a code of ethics, a, a way of behaving that you stand up for others, for your country. You, you fight in a way that is right and true and noble and good. And, and perhaps most popularly, that, well, you treat all women with gentleness, courteousness, and respect. That's chivalry. So let's take a vote. Who thinks chivalry is alive and well? Oof. Okay, who thinks chivalry's dead? And it seems that nobody else wants to play along. Okay, all right. Why am I bringing this up? Well, here's what we know. From Scripture, it doesn't talk about chivalry, but here's the point that I'm suggesting today. Rather, God's Word is suggesting today. Chivalry, by way of metaphor or comparison, it was alive. Chivalry was very much alive. Chivalry died. But chivalry is still very much alive and well. What I'm talking about is our fully armored fighting man. You know, I'm talking about Christ Jesus who went out to do battle against the most formidable evil foe of Satan. We see that in Matthew chapter 4. What we're going to look at this morning is the temptation of Jesus. And what we're going to see is two shocking things about this temptation. But why did the Holy Spirit record the temptation of Jesus in Scripture? It wasn't for mere shock value. It wasn't just to surprise you. No, the temptation of Jesus has very real, spiritual, eternal, and right here, right now, practical value for your life. What the temptation of Jesus does is really, it's not shock value, it's kind of shake-up value. It shakes up the way you and I think about and deal with temptations. That's my prayer for you this morning. That as you listen to this sermon on Matthew chapter 4, the Holy Spirit does just that. It doesn't just shock you by what you see in Jesus' temptation, but it shakes up in you the way you think about temptations in your own life, the way you deal with those temptations in your life. Let's dive into it. This is Matthew chapter 4. We read it just a moment ago. It began this way, that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him. If you're following along in our worship guide this morning, here's the first one. The first shocker, if you will, from the temptation of Jesus is that Jesus was led to be tempted by the Holy Spirit himself. Now think about just the shocking nature of that, that the Spirit of God, Somehow, in the mystery of the Trinity, the Spirit of God led the Son of God out into the wilderness to be tempted by the one who constantly is slandering the Father, God. Think about that. The Spirit led Jesus to be tempted. What does this mean? It means this was God's will. It means that this was no accident. 
I mean, think about that. Jesus' first assignment, it started out by saying, so then. What happened just before this? Jesus was baptized. Jesus was baptized and the Holy Spirit came down on a dove. You heard the voice of the Father say, this is my son. And Jesus' very first assignment in ministry was what? To go do battle with the devil. This wasn't like a first assignment, like what? You want me to not eat for 40 days and 40 nights and then what, do, do battle? Oh, I suppose if I have to. No, 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 it wasn't reluctant like that. This was God's will. Jesus wanted to do this. This wasn't like an accident. It wasn't like Jesus was just like walking along one day and haphazardly like, oh, there's Satan and he's tempting me. No, this was purposeful. This was planned. This was the will of the Father. And Jesus said to himself in John chapter 4, this is my food, to do the will of my Father and finish the work that he gave me to do. So why? Ask the question, why did it have to be this way? Well, there we need to go back to the beginning, the very beginning. We read it earlier, Genesis chapter 3. What we see in the Garden of Eden is perfection. God's perfect creation and the crown of his creation, you and me, Adam and Eve, all of humanity, enjoying a perfect relationship with God where everything else in that relationship was just beautiful, heartfelt worship to him. And what happened? Well, in short, Adam worshiped himself. God gave him a command. He chose not to do it. He wanted to do what he wanted to do. And in that, he destroyed everything. A temptation came to him and he was defeated by it. And the result, every single temptation since, defeated you, defeated me. Because of what happened at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, yeah, you and I will fight against temptation for a time and maybe feel like we're making progress or headway or overcoming, but time and time again, you will fight against things that are wrong in your life and what is the result? You sin. I sin. We fail. We're defeated by this. And so it needed to happen. It needed to happen that God would make good on his promise that he made in the Garden of Eden, that he would send forth a champion. And so it was when Jesus said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased, and that voice boomed at the waters of his baptism, what you see is God made good on his promise that he would send the Messiah, the promised one. It was humanity boiled down to one, come to do battle against the devil once for all. It promised it would happen in the beginning, and he was here to do that very thing, to be our champion, to stand in our place and do the thing that you and I could not do. We could not defeat devil and Satan and our flesh. We couldn't defeat any temptation for long. We would always be overcome. But he sent his champion to be one for us, to be one who would fight against us, not against us, against the devil. And we should probably talk about that word champion, what it means, because well, we use it a little bit differently than, than how I'm talking about it today. 
When you hear champion, you're probably thinking of your softball champion or probably this group of people when you hear champion, no doubt you're thinking about John Boomhofer and Matt Rothy, who are two years running the beanbag champions at the Way Day annual church picnic. I know that's the first thing that comes to mind for all of us when we hear champion, that's it. But that's not what we mean when we talk about the fact that Jesus is our champion. What does that mean? Well, in our day and age of modern warfare, we don't often think about champions being warriors or soldiers and a very specialized type of soldier. Before modern warfare, when there was primarily hand-to-hand combat, what you would often see is this. You would see a champion, a soldier, represent one group of people and go out and do battle against the other. It was these two champions who would engage in combat on behalf of a people that they represented. This was the king's champion, the king's men. And they would do combat in such a way that no one else had to die. It would be for the king's glory. It would be for the people's glory. This you see perhaps most familiarly in the story of David. This is David representing all of Israel. Goliath representing all of the Philistines. This is in, mythologically, this is Hector and Achilles doing wall before the walls of Troy, them doing battle there. This is what Christ Jesus came to be for us. He was our champion to stand in our place and do battle for us on behalf of us because we could not do it. It had to be this way. Yes, it's surprising that the Spirit led Jesus out to be tempted. And yet here's what it means for you. Think about this. It means you can pray the prayer that your champion taught you to pray. You pray it every Sunday. Jesus, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's the Lord's Prayer. You pray, lead us not into temptation. And you can not just say those words, but you can pray them with confidence and with courage. Why? Because you know he's not going to. Because you know that his spirit already led him to do it. You can pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation. And this isn't like, oh, I hope I don't see the devil. I hope he doesn't tempt me. No, you know that he will. This side of heaven, this side of of glory, you know that there will be sin. Sin will reign in this world and it will constantly plague our new man. And yet you know you have a champion. You have a champion who is led out by God, purposely planned from before the very beginning to come and do this thing, to defeat Satan and temptations, all of his, for you by battling it when you and I could not. I mean, so often you think about this question, you think about, well, what did Jesus come to do? You go with maybe, well, die on the cross. Yes, that is what Jesus came to do. But he came to do so much more than that. He came to defeat every single temptation for you. And that's why the Spirit needed to lead Jesus out into the wilderness. Here's the second one, the second shocker, the second surprising thing about the temptation of Jesus. It's how he did battle against Satan. Jesus' weapon was his word. Jesus didn't use his divine power and glory, which he could have. Jesus didn't transfigure himself and take on all his glory, like we saw last week on the Mount of Transfiguration. He could have. 
Instead, we see Jesus at the end of 40 days of being very human, not eating, fasting, and we see him use the tool that scripture calls the sword of the spirit, the weapon of the sword of the spirit. Ephesians chapter six, talking about the full armor of God says this, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. This is the word of God. Hebrews itself describes the weapon of the word, the sword of the spirit in this way, that the word of God is alive and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. This is the weapon that your savior used in battle against the devil. We'll walk through these and, and see how each of he, that he, he used the sword of spirit in each of these, how he single-handedly disarms and destroys Satan. Here's the first one. Tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Satan's saying, Jesus, come on. God must not care about you. I mean, after all, what does he give you for his first assignment? He makes you starve. He must not care about you. He must not know what you need right now. But you, if you're the son of God, you can, you can just make food out of these stones, can't you? You see what he's doing? Every temptation is really this. It's Satan, it's our flesh, it's this world getting us to doubt God, his goodness, his mercy, his care. It's getting us to doubt his word. So what does Jesus do? He says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus says, nice try, Satan. Let me tell you something. I don't survive on bread that comes into my mouth. I survive on the bread that comes out of the mouth of God. He's living and enduring words. That's what sustains me. He goes back to that word and he uses that word to defeat Satan and he does it again. Check this out. The second one, the devil thinks he's wise to Jesus' weapon. So he says to him, after taking him to the holy city, having him stand on the highest point of the mountain, if you are the son of God, he says, throw yourself down, for it is written. See what the devil's doing? He's like, okay, you're using the word of God? You're using that weapon? All right, two can play at that game. Satan says, oh, you know, the Bible says he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You know that's in the Bible, right? Satan is quoting scripture. Satan's a fool. He's, a, he's like a little boy trying to, trying to lift up a grown man's sword. He can't do it. He, he's, he's misapplying God's word there. He's misapplying a promise. And so you see Christ absolutely squash him by swinging the sword of the spirit in an appropriate way. He says, oh yeah, I know. I know that's in the Bible. But it's also written, do not put your Lord, the Lord your God, to the test. And the final way, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor. He says, all this I will give to you if you bow down and worship me. Jesus says to him, away from me, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. There's so much that's really disturbing here. If you think about it, what Satan is doing is taking something that he has some control over because he won one battle. Because he won that one battle with Adam and Eve, he had dominion, he had power here in this world, but this isn't his. 
He doesn't own it. He says, you know, I, I can give this all to you. All you have to do is, is just worship me. You can bypass the thing you know God's making you do, die on the cross. You can bypass all that suffering and he's gonna give that to you? Well, I'll just give it to you right here and right now. All you have to do is worship me. See what Satan's doing in that? He's, he's promising something, something that sounds oh so appealing. The very same thing, just a little shortcut. The fundamental nature of every single temptation is that. Getting you to doubt God's goodness. That what God says in his word is good for you. What God's mercy has in store for you, ah, it's not that good. You can get a shortcut, maybe get something just as good, if not better. And so what does Jesus do? Now, this part's almost comical. Get away from me, Satan. Doesn't even work. And he, he, he rolls out the very first command that God gives him. Worship the Lord your God. Serve him only. This is how God fights against the devil. He uses the sword of the spirit. And here's, here's what ought to bring a complete comfort to you and I who do battle. Do battle with temptations. You have everything you need. You have everything you need to fight against the temptations that come in your life. What does scripture say? Romans chapter eight tells us that the word is near you. It is in your mouth and it is your, in your heart. You have the word of God and you have the spirit. Christ has promised this to you again and again. John chapter 14, you have the advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth, this is yours. You don't have to conjure up the strength to fight against the devil. You don't have to be super self-disciplined and think of all these different ways to, to make sure you don't fall to temptation. You have what you need. You have the one weapon that works. You have the word. So here we are. These are the two surprising things about the temptation of Jesus. I want, to, I want to apply what this means to us. The one thing that I hope that the Holy Spirit takes away from you, takes away this application after knowing that we have a champion who is led out for us. We can take comfort to know that we're never alone. We're never alone in our temptations. In fact, God himself entered the fray to fight for us. That you have the weapon that you need, the weapon of God's word, and it is alive and it's active today. So as you apply this, here's the really, the really shake up thing that will really turn upside down the way you think about and deal with temptations. Now, you ready? If you have this, if you have all of this, if you have a champion and you have the word, the sword of the spirit, and you are completely equipped to use that weapon, Why do you still fall? Why are you still defeated by temptations? I mean, think about that. If you have a champion who is Christ Jesus and he has given you victory and you have the sword of the spirit and you know how to use it, I mean, after all, read God's word, know God's word, you have it, then why are you still giving in to those same temptations again and again? 
Here's the shocking thing about you and I. You can't defeat temptations. You can't defeat the devil. You couldn't ever defeat temptations from the devil, the world, or your sinful flesh. And and here's the real shocker. You can't now either. And that might be surprising. That might shake up the way you think about temptations a little bit. That you can't defeat the devil. You can't do it. If you were to think that the story of Matthew chapter 4 and Jesus' temptation, it somehow, it gives me a how-to guide, how I'm going to go out and defeat the devil, that I've seen Jesus do it, and I saw how he used God's word. Now all I have to do is step out on the battlefield, pick up the sword of the Spirit, and now I can go hand-to-hand against the devil. I can do it. I need to dispel you from those delusions right now. You can't do it. Here's the real shocking thing about temptations. Jesus' victory is our good news. Jesus' victory that he has defeated sin, death, and the power of the devil, and every single temptation for you, that is good news. Jesus' victory is not your how-to guide. It is not the how-to guide for now how you get to go out and defeat and work against temptations in your life. Now, Let's unpack that because that has significant meaning for how we think about and deal with temptations. I'm not saying that you shouldn't try to not give in to temptations. But what I am being real about right now is the fact that you will. You will again and again, no matter how many times you stand strong against the devil, fall. Our greatest need is to have a champion. And if we think the Jesus victory is, is, is just a how-to manual or a guide to go against the devil, you're going to end up in some really dark spots spiritually. What's going to happen to you is that you are going to pick up the sword of the Spirit. You're going to step out onto the battlefield of life, and you're going to go against temptations. And you might win a battle here or there, but you will also lose. And this is where it gets really dark and scary. If you think to yourself that God's word is merely a how-to guide for how, well, Jesus did it and he did it like this, now I can go and do it. You're going to think that God's called you to defeat the devil, to defeat evil. And when you lose, you're going to stand there, sword in hand and wonder, does this sword even work? You're going to wonder, is, is God even with me? And maybe worst of all, did God lead me here? Did God leave me here to lose? And you will be overcome by guilt, by shame, crushed by the fact that you can't beat the devil. But here's the good news. This is good news for you. The good news about Jesus' victory over temptation, over the devil, is that he has defeated victory, he has defeated devil for you, and he has just given that victory to you. Can I make this really personal? I would love for you, I would love for you to look at me and think, there is a Christian soldier. There is someone who knows God's word. There is someone who goes toe-to-toe with 
temptations and the devil and what's wrong with the world and our sinful flesh. And there's someone who uses God's word and defeats those temptations again and again. I would love for you to look at me and see that. Maybe you can relate. But can I confess to you that there's times where, for as much as I know God's word, I just leave the sword at home. For as much as I love God's word, I, I forget to even pick it up and use it. There's other times where I think I have, I have better weapons that I can use. I said it before, maybe my self-discipline. Maybe, maybe I'm, I'm just not gonna put myself in the place of temptations. And so again and again, I fall. I'm defeated. And maybe you can relate to that too. But where do you go when you're defeated? If, if God's word and his victory is just a how-to manual for us, well, you'll stay in that feeling of defeated, defeatism, of feeling guilty, of feeling shame. But if God's word is good news, and that is what the gospel it is, it is good news that Christ Jesus has won the victory for you, then you have that to turn to every time you're defeated and know that you have a champion. You have a champion who has come and defeated the devil once for all for you and has given his victory to you. So even when you're defeated, you're still a winner because you have a champion who is Christ Jesus. Can I show you a powerful cinematic illustration of how this plays out? All right. So it comes from one of the later seasons of Game of Thrones. And just to set this up for you, the epic hero is someone by the name of Jon Snow. Jon Snow is a commander and a warrior, okay? And through a series of different terrible manipulations, the evil, evil enemy gets Jon Snow out on the battlefield all by himself. This is kind of what the devil does. And this is what you see. Let, watch this while I narrate it for you, okay? Jon Snow's standing there, and he realizes that all of the enemies are bearing down on him, and he has nothing else to do but take up his sword. And this is maybe where I'd like you to see me, and maybe you want to be seen as someone standing, taking on all these temptations. But you can't do it. You need help. And just at the last moment, that's what Jon Snow gets. And yet he stands there, and even among the help, he... He doesn't do anything. He just stands looking around, swinging around his head, but never his sword. In a way, that's our picture of our life as Christians. Yes, we have the sword of the Spirit, and yes, we are able to use it and swing it as we see all of these temptations barreling down on us. But know this, the Calvary has come. Christ Jesus, your champion, has ridden in at the moment that God has so planned and purposed and desired, and he has come to defeat every temptation for you. Yeah, we're in the battle, and sometimes we might feel like we're swinging all around us, wondering where, where all these temptations are coming from. But know this, that the triune God, the Holy Spirit, is there, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, to defeat the devil for you. And this is the decisive word about the outcome of this battle that scripture gives. We read it in Romans chapter five. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. What was that one act? It was the coming of your champion, Christ Jesus. Chivalry, Christ, 
He was alive. He came to do battle for you. But chivalry died. On a, on a hill called Calvary, Christ Jesus died, but he rose again, and he is alive and fighting for you. He is not just fighting for you, but he is giving the victory that he has already won to you. As the hymn itself said, is that with might of ours, nothing can be done. Soon were our loss effected, but for us fights the valiant one whom God himself elected. You ask, who is this? Jesus Christ, it is. The almighty Lord, and there's no other God. He holds the field forever. Amen.